When our youngest son Joshua was about five, he told me that he wanted to be a preacher because preachers get to stand up here and talk and talk and ramble and ramble. Um, that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to talk and talk and ramble and ramble. And you all are supposed to listen. And if you get through before I do, you can leave. <laughs> but uh, I have a lot of things I want to say. We're going to suspend our studies in Hebrews for this Sunday and talk about the abortion question. And uh, as I started working on this message, it got longer and longer and longer until it was 12 pages long. And I thought I certainly cannot inflict that on the congregation this morning, so uh, I put it in printed form, and it's in the back of the auditorium. So uh, I would encourage you to pick one up, because there are going to be a lot of loose ends. There are just so many questions to be answered that it's impossible to deal adequately with this subject in 40 minutes. So I'll leave it to you to uh, read the paper and perhaps fill in uh, some of the gaps. I uh, I have approached this Sunday with a great deal of reluctance, not because I am afraid to speak out on this issue. I think everyone knows what my position is. I wrote it into a column a couple of weeks ago, and it uh, really doesn't bother me that people disagree. But I am reluctant because I know how much hurt this message can inflict on, on women who have undergone abortions. And in, in any group this size, there are bound to be a number of women that have had abortions in the past. And I know the hurt that a message like this can bring. That's why I'm reluctant. And I want to be just as sensitive as I possibly can. I want to be forthright and truthful and deal with the text faithfully. But I also want you to know that I do understand the feelings of guilt and shame and and the pain that sometimes follows a message of this uh, of this type. Uh, for me, when we talk about the abortion issue, the real issue, the fundamental, bottom line issue, is the nature of the unborn child. the The discussion, at least in my own mind, centers around the civil rights, the human rights of human beings. That's an issue that just has to be addressed. The issue, as I see it, is not constitutional rights to privacy. It's not the right that a woman has over her own body. Those rights are always conditioned by other people's human rights. The real bottom line issue is what is the child, the unborn child? Is it a human being? Now, here in the West and, uh, and certainly as Christians, we believe in the sanctity of human life. All human rights movements are based on that self-evident truth. It seems self-evident. Actually, it's not, apart from Revelation. But, but there's a sense that all of us have that human life is sacred and needs to be defended and, and protected. It's hardly ever argued here in, in the West that that's true. Now, I should point out that we Christians do not believe in the sanctity of all life. That's more Hindu or Buddhist than it is Christian. Uh, the life of animals is of a different order than the life of human beings. We believe that human life is sacred and, and must, be, uh, must be protected. 
Now, the real question is this. Is the fetus, the unborn embryo, a human being? That's the question that uh, we have to answer. Now, the problem is that the Bible is curiously silent on this subject. The, uh, the word abortion or idioms that indicate abortion or miscarriage are very uh, scarce in the Bible. The only places they occur that I've been able to, to, to discover is once in the New Testament where Paul refers to himself as aborted. It's in that section of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul is talking about the resurrection. He's arguing for it, and he's talking about the personal appearances of Christ after the resurrection. He says, I was one to whom Jesus uh, appeared as one born out of due time, is the way I think the NASB translates that, that phrase. And he uses the Greek word for abortion, but he's using the word metaphorically there probably to describe the way he was extruded out of the world and into the kingdom. He was sort of dragged, kicking and screaming out of his world into, into Christ's kingdom, and I think that's what he had in mind. So since he's speaking symbolically, the, the, that text doesn't help us. There's one other text where the Hebrew idiom simply uh, states the children came out. You may be familiar with that passage. It's in Exodus 21. It's an example of case law. Uh, some of the laws in the Old Testament came out of actual situations, and apparently this is one. The case was brought before Moses to adjudicate. He made a decision based on something that had happened. That case was written into the, into the law code, became a part of Israel's God-inspired law, because Moses was the inspired lawgiver. Apparently what happened is the two men were scuffling, uh, the pregnant wife of one of the men stepped in between them, tried to separate them. She was struck and miscarried. And uh, Moses made a judgment, made a decision out of that case. He said, uh, when that sort of thing happens, if there is no harm, then she and her husband would simply be compensated with money. But if there is harm, then you apply the law of retaliation, the lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. Um, the question is to what that phrase further injury refers. Does it refer to the mother or does it refer to the child? The rabbis all said almost universally it refers to the mother, in which case the child uh, is not considered to be a living human being. You don't exact a life for a life. Uh, but we don't know. For myself, I think the phrase refers to both. Uh, it could refer to the mother. If she is injured, then the husband is compensated. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. If the child is injured, then he is likewise compensated in that way, or at least judgment is enacted uh, in his favor. And uh, the, the death of the child uh, necessitates the death of the one that caused that accident. But we don't know. A further problem with that text is the whole question of premeditation. Because in the in Old Testament law, manslaughter was not a capital offense, and this is this would fall into that category. This is not premeditated murder. So the text is very difficult to interpret. Even the rabbis don't know what's going on. I sure don't know what's going on there, and it's not a text that I want to appeal to either for pro-choice or pro-life. I don't think it's applicable because we don't know precisely what what the text means. Here's what I think is going on in the Bible. I think that the writers of the Bible simply assumed that fetal life is human life. And in the same way in which they assume the, the uh, existence of God, they never argue for God's existence. They just assume it. 
And I believe that the writers, both of the Old and New Testament, assumed that fetal life was human life, and therefore the laws governing murder would, would apply. Let me give an example, contemporary example. As far as I know in the United States, there are no specific laws prohibiting child sacrifice. Now, some of you attorneys could help me, but I don't think there's a single law anywhere that specifically prohibits child sacrifice because it's unnecessary. That particular crime is subsumed under other uh, other, other codes, uh, the first-degree murder codes, manslaughter, and so forth. Um, so I think that's why it's difficult to find a text that tells us exactly the nature of the unborn child. However, there are inferences made from which we can draw certain conclusions. But whenever we work on the basis of inference in Scripture, we have to hold our convictions with humility. Where Scripture speaks precisely, we can speak precisely. Where it does not, we must always, uh, we must always be humble and modest in our interpretation. Um, let me say, first of all, that before we talk about human life, we have to define what we mean by human. There is a qualitative difference between human life and all other life. Uh, despite what Farside tells us, cows do not sit around and contemplate the meaning of life. Uh, they don't talk about those great issues. They don't, they don't talk about morals. They act instinctually. We're different. We're of an entirely different order, a higher order of beings. And Scripture says what that difference is, is the image of God. We, according to Genesis 1 and, and Psalm 8, are created in the image of God, according to his likeness. Now, I take that to be an idiom. We are created in the image of God, somewhat like God. We're not gods, we never will be gods, but we're like God. In what way? Well, we have, uh, we have a sense of morality. We can choose good or evil. We can communicate. We have creative capacities. We're very much like God. But more importantly, we can know God and we can share his life. That's what makes us distinct and unique in the world. Uh, Carolyn told a, so, a story in, uh, in, at the women's meeting about a friend of ours who is in a philosophy class at Berkeley and uh, the, the uh, uh, professor, who's quite a well-known uh, uh, thinker and, and philosopher there on the campus, was discussing the whole issue of the existence of God and reviewing some of the medieval arguments for his existence. And he walked, in the course of his lecture, he's pacing back and forth uh, through the room, and he walked over to a window and looked out of the window and puffed his pipe for, for a few minutes, and he said, for me, the greatest argument for the existence of God is that I miss him so. Now, that's the image of God. Uh, that explains those longings, those yearnings within us that can only be satisfied with God. Cows don't feel that longing. Uh, we do. We do. And that's the image of God. So the question is, does the unborn embryo have that image? Does it bear the image of God? Now, a number of passages I want you to look at. The first is in Job, uh, Job 10. Uh, Job is in big trouble, as you know. He's in peril of losing his grip on God because uh, all these awful things are happening to him. And so he reminds himself of his roots. Now, what he does is write a little creation poem. 
And uh, he ties his origins, his creation, into Adam's creation. He points out that he was created exactly as Adam was created. Now, I want to. Uh, there's something I want to point out to you. The the people who wrote the Bible certainly knew there was a cause and effect relationship between sexual intercourse and conception. They weren't dummies, but they never thought that that effect was ensured. Uh, for example, the writer of Genesis, who was Moses, says of uh, Eve. She was given a man. She got a man from the Lord. Uh, Leah and Rachel uh, were told uh, they were barren, and so God opened their womb, and uh, and so forth. There, there is a sense in which God creates anew every uh, every new life. We only procreate. God is the one who creates. And we need to keep that in mind. Someone pointed out to me this morning after my message that uh, what that means is that we actually belong to God. Uh, we don't belong to anyone else. We belong to him. Now, let's look at verse 8. Uh, Job goes back to his beginnings. Your hands shaped me and made me. Uh, he uses the Hebrew, Hebrew word for carve or sculpt. Will you now turn and destroy me? Unfortunately, none of the uh, texts pick up the... The subtlety of that phrase, me, he uses a word that means me alone. It's, it's a word that's used for one's only begotten son, uh, unique, distinctive one, special one, and that's the term that he uses. And his argument is, look, you made me and you made me special. Are you going to turn away from me now? Remember that you molded me like clay. It's, uh, he goes back to the earthiness of our origins. We're all made out of out of clay, out of mud. And as a friend of mine says, nobody's made out of super mud. We're all made out of the same stuff. Uh, he molded this shapeless substance into something and and uh, gave it life. His, he's talking about his primal origins. He began that way, just as Adam began. He began with dust, and he turns into dust. You probably heard the story about the little boy that heard the story of Adam being created out of dust and returning to dust. And uh, he, he uh, looked under his bed and got very frightened, ran downstairs and said, Mother, there's a man under my bed, but I don't know whether he's coming or going. <laughs> we forget that, that that's where we came from, and that's where the material part of us is going. Verse 10, did you not pour me out like milk? That's a reference to conception, the union of sperm and ovum. Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me? Or it's the Hebrew word to congeal, to form something out of... Uh, out of a, a liquid mass, curdle me like cheese. It's a very apt description, really, of, of how the embryo forms. You clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. Uh, the growth, the process of growth continues in the unborn uh, infant. Uh, you gave me life. You enlivened me, literally. And you showed me kindness. He showed me kindness. Now, that's the word that's used everywhere in the Old Testament for God's covenant love for his people. It's more than just God being kind to people. It's God sticking to his word, doing what he says he will do because he gave his word that he would do it. It's a very special word. It's applied to those who know him. We're called the Hasidim, the holy ones. He's called the one who shows chesed, that is, loyalty. 
to us. We're the recipients of that loyalty. And here, before Job was even born, God showed him chesed, showed him loyalty. And in your providence, uh, that's the word for intervention by by a, a supernatural force. You intervened and you you watched over my soul. You see, uh, you see how Job's arguing? Things are getting very difficult for him. Life's getting very grim. But he argues that from conception on, he's been the recipient of God's goodness and his care and his, his love. This begins with conception. All right, let's look at another passage. If they persecute you in one text, flee to another. It's always been my philosophy. Psalm 139. By the way, uh, someone asked me once when I was going through these prophetic, uh, these these poetic sections of Scripture and talking about the abortion question. They said, "Is it really legitimate to use poetry to derive theology?" And I, my view is absolutely. We have to read poetry as poetry. Uh, Job's not saying that little children are made out of green cheese. That's not the point. But the symbolism is very clear, and the truths are there, even though the language is symbolic. We have to interpret symbol as symbol, but we, it, it's perfectly proper to derive theology or doctrine from these poetic books. The, the, the apostles do it all the time. They quote a poem, and then they apply it directly to Jesus, for example. So that's, that's perfectly legitimate. Now let's look at Psalm 139. Uh, historically, David was catching some flack from people, and it had eroded away his sense of worth. We can all identify whenever people criticize us, when they put us down, uh, when they talk behind our back, uh, and we start feeling not real good about ourselves. And apparently this is what had happened to David. So he begins to remind himself of God's personal involvement in his life. Now, the New American Standard Bible uh, has a title that I think is wrong. The, the title says that this poem has to do with the omniscience, the, the fact that God knows everything, and the omnipresence, the fact that God is everywhere present, of God. Two theological terms. Uh, I have to use those terms every once in a while because I went to school and paid a lot of money to learn them. But uh, generally, they aren't too meaningful to us. And uh, they, they, I don't think they were too meaningful to David either. He, he couldn't get really excited about God's omniscience and God, you know, God's omnipresence. What he's saying here is that God, not that God knows everything, but that God knows me. And not that God is everywhere present, but God is present with me. See, that's something to get, get excited about. And, and this is the tack we ought to take when we feel that we're not worth much. Um, verse 1, O oh Lord, you searched me. With the result that, I take the and as introducing a result clause. You have ransacked me is the idea. You've, you've gone all the way through my life. You winnowed through my life with the result that you know me thoroughly. God knows me inside out. He misses nothing. He has captured everything. You know when I sit and when I rise. Uh, that expression, sit and rise, is what grammarians call a merism. The statement of opposites to indicate totality. 
We have that idiom in English when we say, we talk about a gathering and we say the rich and the poor were there. We don't mean there were just rich people and poor people. We mean all economic classes. So when he says, you know, when I, when I sit down, when I rise up, you know, when I uh, go out and when I lie down and when I come in and, and uh, when, I, when I go out and when I come home and so forth. He's just talking about the entirety of his life. God knows everything about him. He not even knows, he not only knows him on the inside, he knows him on the outside. You know, when I sit, when I rise, you understand is the word. Uh, the NIV translates perceive. That's, that's a good translation, but understand is the idea. You understand my thoughts from afar. The word for thoughts is the word for longings, yearnings, aspirations, hopes, fears. This is our inward reality. As, as psychologists say today, God knows what we long for, what we hunger for. He knows all the yearnings and the desires, the hungers of our heart. Uh, you are familiar with all my ways. You, he cares about all the details of your life. He knows when the stock market crashes. He knows when your cat dies. He knows when your children are struggling. He understands all the details of your life. Um, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. He knows what we think, even if we don't say it. He knows what we think when we do say it. He knows what we meant to say when we misspeak ourselves. He understands everything about our minds. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge of me. So he's not talking about his omniscience. Such knowledge of me is too wonderful for me. It's beyond my ken. Too lofty for me to attain. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that God knows him better than he knows himself. Uh, we are such a bundle of contradictions. We don't, any of us, know ourselves. But God knows us. He knows everything about us. He says that knowledge is too lofty for me. I can't attain to it. Now, the implications of God's knowledge of David uh, brings him over into the fact that God goes wherever he goes. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? These are the verses that Francis Thompson used as the basis of his poem, The Hound of Heaven. God hounds us relentlessly, lovingly, bears down on us to gather us in. If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. There's another merism. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, go to the east. If I settle on the far side of the sea, that's the west. Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. So it's not that we have to hang on to God. He hangs on uh, to us. And the right hand is the strongest hand of all. That's the way that... Uh, that uh, expression is used symbolically. Now, verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, envelop me, hide me from, from you, he's saying, from God. And the light becomes night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Now, do you understand David's state of mind? He's not really in the darkness, not physical darkness, but emotionally he is... He's in, in a dark, dark mood. He doesn't like himself. He's feeling utterly worthless, stripped of dignity and, and value and effectiveness. And he's in this terrible, dark mood. But, and he feels that, uh, that God is 
not involved in his life at all. God might not be able to see through the darkness. And then there's this moment of truth. He realizes that God does see him in the darkness. Now, follow the argument. This is the uh, the bottom line, really, of, of, of this psalm. If you notice, verse 13 begins with the conjunction for. For. You created my inmost being. For means because. How does David know that God sees him in, in his darkest mood? Because in the darkest time of his life, when he was utterly shut off from the light, when he was in his mother's womb, God knew him. That's his argument. And if God knew him there, he knew him in any other place on the face of the earth, no matter how dark it became. Now, let's follow along his argument. For you, and uh, here he, there's a heavy emphasis on this word you. You yourself created my inmost being. Uh, he was not merely the product of the union of his mother and father. God created his inmost being, all of his, uh, his parts. It's the word for viscera in Hebrew. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Same word that's used in Job 10 when he describes God knitting together his bones and sinew. I praise you or I thank you because I am fearfully, that's the word for all in Hebrew, I thank you because I am awesome, David says, and I am wonderfully made. And he uses the Hebrew word for uniqueness, distinctiveness. There are no two people in the world alike. Our fingerprints are not alike. Our personalities are not alike. Our faces are not alike. You can scan the whole world. You'll never find anyone like you. And David realizes that he is utterly unique. There is no one anywhere on the face of the earth like David, and God created him that way. And he is awesome. Now, I have a little exercise for you tomorrow morning when you, after you take a shower. And uh, before you get dressed, uh, use the towel and clean off the mirror, get the fog off so you can see yourself, and look at your body and say, that is awesome. <laughs> oh, I'm serious. I am wonderfully made, David said. Your works are wonderful. Uh, by the way, that word wonderful is the word in the Old Testament that's used for miraculous. You're a miracle. Your, your origins uh, are utterly miraculous. You came from the hand of God. There's no one like you. That's what makes you so awesome. That's what makes you you. That's what makes David David. That's what makes you the unique personality that, that you are. My frame was not hidden from you. My skeletal structure when I was made in the secret place, that is in that dark place of concealment in his mother's womb, when I was woven or embroidered together in the depths of the earth. The word that's translated woven here is the word that's used, was used in that culture for a weaver placing colors in a tapestry. And it's a beautiful picture of what God does to our, with our genetic structure. And puts all the code in the DNA and weaves us all together. Your wit, your personality, your, your physical uh, structure, your athletic ability, or you know, everything you have was given to you at conception. When, when sperm and ovum united, when conception took place, then you were, God wove you together in a miraculous way. Nothing was added but time. Every, all the stuff that made you you was formed at that time, and God 
wove you together wonderfully, made you the unique person that that you are. Uh, he says, you, I was woven together in the depth or the interior of the earth. It's a symbolic way of referring to his mother's womb in that place of deepest, darkest concealment. God saw his unformed body. You see how he's arguing? God will see me anywhere because he saw me there. He saw me in the darkest place. Your eyes saw my unformed body. That's the Hebrew word for embryo. It's golem in Hebrew. Sounds like one of J.R.R. Tolkien's words. Uh, wonderfully descriptive, I think. He said, you saw that unformed person. Now, uh, let me retranslate verse 16, because as it's translated, it doesn't make much sense. My translation says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The Hebrew text actually reads this way. Let me read it to you. And in your book, all of them were written. Day by day when there was not one of them. In your book, all of them. What? The members of your unformed, of the unformed fetus. They were written in the book. When? Before there was ever one of them. What's he talking about? I think he's talking about the manual that, that went with you. The manual that went with David. You, you, know, you buy some piece of apparatus like a lawnmower or something. It's all in pieces in a box. you know, And they give you a manual and tell you how to put it together. And I think that's what David is talking about here. It's the manual that went with this man, David. And, uh, you know, it's all symbol, of course. This is poetry. God doesn't actually have a book that he follows. He doesn't have an actual blueprint. But in symbol, David sees God unrolling this blueprint. And he says, okay, the foot bone goes on the... Ankle bone, the ankle bone goes on the leg bone, and he made David according to this preconceived plan that was written out long before David ever was conceived. And God saw to it that all the parts got in the right place, and so whatever you are, you're what God planned from eternity, which includes the good parts of you as well as the parts that you value. It's the way God made you. Uh, and so, in verse 17, he says, Your uh, intentions for me are precious. How precious concerning me are your thoughts. The word translated thoughts is the same word in verse 2 that uh, I explained as longings, desires, intentions. God has longings for us as well as the longings we have for ourselves. Were I, were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awoke, I am still with you. Still with you. The waking here is not the waking uh, when the alarm goes off in the morning. It's it's his awakening at birth. Uh, the the Hebrew tense indicates a past act, a completed act. When I awoke, I was still with you. What's he saying? His relationship to God did not begin with birth. It began with conception. From the time when God brought about conception and created that little human being with all of the genetic code written in, into that little body and he began to develop, God knew him, God loved him, God cared for him, God sought him out. And then when birth came, as David puts it, I was still with you. One other verse. Uh, let's go back to Psalm 51, the passage that I read earlier. 
Now, I'm not going to reread the psalm. I simply want to refer to verses 5 and 6. You may have noticed, if you were following, that I retranslated the New English Version in verse 6. Uh, as I said, this psalm came out of David's adultery. and he, he murdered his best friend, or one of his best friends, Uriah, and he lied for a year, and uh, Bathsheba became his living girlfriend for that year. And then Nathan came to him and, and, and indicted him. And David repented, and he wrote this psalm out of that experience. And uh, he, he uses every word in the Hebrew vocabulary for sin, transgression, iniquity, sin, exhausts the Hebrew terms. Uh, he doesn't indict his parents or society, he just blames himself. It's my transgression, it's my iniquity, it's, it's my sin, I'm the one that's missed the mark. He doesn't extenuate his his sin or his guilt, he, he just faces the facts. He fesses up, as, as we say. He takes the rap for it. Verse 4, it's against you. You only have I sinned. He'd sinned against your ride, sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the child uh, that, that he conceived out of that relationship. He sinned against the nation. But uh, he understands the issue. Ultimately, he had, he had sinned against against God. He goes to the heart of the matter. It's evil in your sight. So you're proved right when you speak uh, through Nathan. I think he's referring to Nathan's, uh, to that day that Nathan walked into his court and fingered him as the one who was guilty and justified when you judge. Surely I have been a sinner from birth. Uh, in other words, this evil is not some freak happening. It's totally in character. He comes from flawed stock. He says, that's the way I've always been. I've been a sinner from birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Ah, that's interesting. That means that David was a moral being. From the moment of conception on, God had written his law in his heart. Because he goes on to say in verse 6, Surely you desire truth. In the inner parts. Now, it sounds as though David is talking about his inner parts, but he's not. He's talking about his mother. You desire truth in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that inmost place. Uh, I came across a quotation by an Old Testament scholar by the name of Edward Dalglish. And uh, uh, it's one of those happy times when somebody agrees with me. Let me quote from his book, Psalm 51, in the light of Near Eastern idiom. The, the psalmist knows full well the divine desire for truth to be a moral imperative. Even in the formative stages of his being within his mother's womb and is conscious that even there wisdom was taught him, the moral law was inscribed within his being. So I think that unborn fetuses bear the image of God. It's inferential, I, I, must, I must confess. But I believe that the unborn child that women carry in their womb is a human being from conception on. That child bears the image of God. That child is morally culpable. That child is born into the world in a state of sin. 
That is a responsible being, and that person is known of God and loved by God and preserved by God and cared for by God and therefore is a human being. Now, you may disagree, but this is what I believe. I uh, Let me read something that I wrote in this paper. By the way, as I told you, the... Um, there's so much, I feel like the poet from Japan whose poetry no one could scan. When said it, it was so, he said, yes, I know, but I try to get as many words in the last line as I can. Um, I, I uh, could not say everything I wanted to say this morning, and so I wrote it up, but this is my conclusion. I've been against abortion ever since I knew what it was. In the beginning, I instinctively believed in the sanctity of a mother's womb. It seemed terribly wrong to violate a baby's right to privacy and protection in that presumably safe place. What little reading I've done in the field of genetics convinced me that we're human from conception. When sperm and ovum unite, they form a small human program to develop eventually into an adult. All the genetic stuff that makes us uniquely us is there from the beginning. Nothing is added but time. My conviction is deepened as I meditated on the above text, the text that we've looked at, Job 10, Psalm 51, Psalm 139. And by the way, I I cover them more extensively in the paper. Uh, My conviction is deepened as I meditated on the above text and became aware that all the elements that make us human are ascribed to us while still in the womb, and that God knows us as individuals and loves us before we were born, and therefore convinced that unborn children, and not mothers only, are fully human. Beings beings made in the image of God and therefore have human rights, which must be protected. Nothing stirs our conscience like the current uh, rate of abortion. I don't know what would. Now, not everybody is called to be directly involved in this cause. God calls people to different causes. And your field of endeavor may, may be different from someone else's. But all of us need to speak out. As Paul said, we should redeem the time because the days are evil. And as I've pointed out a number of times, Paul is not saying we ought to redeem the time because the days are getting short. He's saying the days are evil. Evil days are days of opportunity. And I see these days when human life is being cheapened and we are, as G.K. Chesterton said, on the slippery road to euthanasia, as evil days that we can use as opportunities to proclaim the good news that regardless of our past, we are forgiven. The Lord has saved us, regenerated us, given us a, a new beginning. And we can also speak out about the life, the human life, that is growing in, in a mother's womb. We need to speak out. We need to talk to others. We need to share our feelings. We need to be forthright and honest and truthful about this issue. Now, uh, let me say a, a few things just to condition that. Let's not forget that we're in a spiritual warfare. We're not going to win this battle just by talking. The kingdom of God does not come by words, Paul says, but by power, by spiritual power. The enemy is not the abortionist. The enemy is not the person that runs the clinic, the abortion clinic. The enemy is not the the physician who conducts the abortion. They are the victims of the enemy. The real enemy is Satan, who's behind the scenes. David, Jesus said he is a liar and a murderer. 
He deceives, and he wants to destroy human life. And he's as much behind the present abortion craze as he was behind the destruction of the innocents in Bethlehem. He does not want human beings to be born. He hates the human race because there's the potential of that person coming to know God and being greatly used for God's sake. And so he wants to snuff out any life that he can. He hates you. He hates that child in your womb. He hates everything about the human race. And he will do anything to murder and destroy human life. And we need to understand, as Paul puts it, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the abortion clinic. It is against the principalities and powers in high places. And as Paul puts it, we must not, we must not lay aside the great spiritual weapons that God has given to us. Prayer, obedience, love, and the proclamation of the truth. Those are four of the weapons that God has given to us. And while we're talking about love, I would just like to say that we need to love the abortionist. As Jesus loves that person. They are not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. And to put it in Paul's words, he said, The servant of God must not strive, but be gentle with all men and women, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If perhaps they will, they will, uh, God will grant to them repentance and they will find release from the one who has taken them captive to do his will. See, they've been victimized by the evil one. They've been duped by him. And it's our forthright, courageous, loving, truthful proclamation of the facts that uh, will penetrate uh, the heart. These, uh, you know, the the media always play up these pictures of uh, Christians uh, with angry, crazed looks on their face, shouting dirty names at other human beings and waving their Bibles in the air. That must not be true. Of us. Those people are human beings too. And Jesus made it very clear that if we assassinate someone's character, it's the same thing as murder. And so we just need to understand that they are human beings as well as the little people that are growing in, in their mother's womb. And we need to respect their dignity and their, their rights as human beings as well. But we do need to speak up. Let me say one other thing, and then I must uh, bring this thing to a close. Uh, in our debates with non-Christians, we should understand that the Bible is not our common ground. Uh, so often I hear Christians arguing from the Bible, Psalm 139, for example, with non-Christians about prenatal uh, uh, human life. It's not our common ground. They don't believe the Bible. And what concerns me about that particular method is that it may give the impression that the abortion issue is a religious issue. It is that. It's a spiritual issue. But it is also a human rights issue. And there are certain self-evident truths. Actually, they're not self-evident apart from Revelation, but we, we believe, we think they, that, that, that they are. We feel them intuitively. And one of these truths is the human life is sacred. And I believe that even people who are abortionists, who are pro-choice, unless their consciences have been seared beyond, almost beyond recovery, know, they just know, that that life within is a human life. And so we need to, if we're going to quote scripture at non-Christians, we need to quote it sparingly and rather argue from those self-evident inalienable rights that we possess 
as human beings. I, I developed that a little bit more in the, uh, in the paper. As I said before, I, I just know that it's impossible for a group this size to gather without there being women here who have undergone abortions and you're feeling shame and guilt and you're wondering if you're responsible for the murder of a human being and that can be a dreadful thing to contemplate. I just want you to know that you're forgiven on the basis of the cross. That's where we gather. All of us are just a bunch of sinners. None of us has an edge on any other human being. I've never been responsible for an abortion, but I've been responsible for other things that are just as heinous in God's eyes. And we all just gather at the foot of this cross. And, and we hear him say, it's finished. He did the work. We don't have to do anything more. We don't have to prove anything to God. We don't have to prove anything to, anything to ourselves. If you accept that forgiveness and you receive his grace, and Paul says there is no condemnation to those that are in that are in Christ Jesus